President Trump likes to talk about the forgotten man and woman. Well, in this budget, he's forgotten about the very people he promised to help in his State of the Union last week. Budget supposed to be a statement of our values. Once again, this president is demonstrating how little he values the good health, financial security, and well-being of hardworking American families. Let me say tonight that this victory here is the beginning of the end for Donald Trump. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So Roger Stone, that daffy, filthy trickster and longtime chief of the tortures lobby, who's not anywhere near as amusing as he thinks he is, was facing sentencing for obstructing Congress and witness tampering. It was bad. He's the last convict in the Russia investigation by special counsel Robert Mueller. Stone's forever drug buddy, you may remember, is the one with whom he cooked up no end of murderous drug deals. That was Paul Manafort. Manafort is, of course, in prison, and it was the fondest hope of all Americans who love justice that Stone would land squarely in the clink, too, for a long time. But true to the Trump administration's one clear policy objective, the obstruction of justice, wherever justice might rear its head, Bill Barr in Maine justice, jumped on the sentencing guidelines of seven to nine years, those guidelines given by other federal prosecutors, and has taken the, uh, what do they call it, the unusual step, the dickhead step of smacking down those prosecutors to say that while 20 years can be okay for someone doing bong hits, seven to nine years for an enemy of the nation who hooked up something with WikiLeaks is far too much. Poor Stone. Barr is, of course, the grandmaster of the incel video game World of Obstruction Craft, who has been playing for one million hours straight and is goggle-eyed from how much obstruction he's racked up. Barr entered the leaderboard by first garbling and blocking the Mueller report itself, which he lied about so absurdly that even Mueller said he'd misrepresented the work. Still, Barr was on obstruction tilt and framed the report to Trumpites as somehow exonerating. It was not exonerating and went back to flacking for Trump every day and making more room for Trump's criming and colluding. So now, naturally, he's stepping in to make sure poor Roger Stone, Trump's longtime buddy, Stone of the Torturers Lobby, Stone of Stone Manafort, that black hat bad actor face in the dictionary next to the words bad actor, bad actor, Roger Stone, he gets shown some leniency because, well... Stone is a truly horrible criminal, and Barr lives to roll out the red carpet to all the truly horrible criminals, as long as they're Trump cultists, like he is. Seeing Barr Bigfoot in for Stone today, by the way, made me feel some sick grief that's different from workaday Trump time sorrows. And I thought of Edward Gray, the English foreign minister. See, I'm trying to dignify what I felt here. I thought of Gray seeming to give up when reason and diplomacy didn't work with the Russian czar and the German Kaiser and all the bloodthirsty people who were just intent on doing the most wrong, most devastating, most absurd and most ill-intentioned thing that is starting World War I. Gray tried hard, but right on the eve of the UK's entrance into the war, he said, the lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. And if Stone gets a slap on the wrist because of Barr's interference and his desire to put one more far-right cretin above the law, man, at least five more lights are going to go out in this formerly great nation. Okay, my guest today is going to think all this sad talk is unproductive, because for her, the intent is to beat 
Trump and sad talk doesn't beat anyone. She does, on the other hand, like apocalyptic talk, angry talk, scary talk, and talk that gets people to the polls. Rachel Bittekoffer is assistant director of the Wason Center for Public Policy at Christopher Newport University in Virginia, where she teaches classes on political behavior, elections, and political analysis. But the big deal is that she has invented an election forecasting model that predicted the 2018 midterms five months before Election Day, far ahead of any other forecasting method. She's the it girl now of political forecasting, even though that male-dominated field has tried to sideline her. She's immensely, immensely interesting. And she's got a fascinating book about 2016, different from all the other books about 2016, called The Unprecedented 2016 Presidential Election. Rachel, hello, and welcome to Trumpcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. You are my ideal guest because you have been calling something right for a long time and your voice has not been heard. And I want you to tell sort of first the meta story of how you came to do what you do, election prognostication, sort of reading the electorate, making some predictions first about 2018 and then about 2020 on a big scale, how you came to do that, and then also how it is that I'm only now hearing your name. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's funny, right? Like, I totally never meant to be an election forecaster person. Yeah. But yet, I also, like, set out to achieve exactly what's happening to me right now. Oh, <laughs> so it's amazing. Scary, you know? I was a single mom. I was 24. It was 2004. The Iraq War was going on. Bush's, you know, was becoming so unpopular. And I was a, in a dead end at administrative job that was like basically wor working class wage. I mean, it was a really bad job. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, I better go to college. Now I can get financial aid. So I did. And I realized you could study political science as a major. And, and then I discovered Rachel Maddow. And I was like, oh, she has a PhD in poli sci. Wow, what a thing to do, you know? <laughs> it took years. It took like 12 years because I had to go get a undergraduate degree. And then I had to go get a PhD. PhD. But rather than fall in lockstep with your colleagues, you developed, I mean, he who shall be unnamed, Nate Silver, is <laughs> over here <laughs> on one side of things, coming up with, um, you know, highly technical ways of forecasting elections. You have a whole different approach. What is this? I mean, it's not an algorithm. It's almost like an epic narrative you have in your head that helped you to predict 2018 so well. What is it? Yeah, actually, that's really true, right? Because what I do is quantitative. It's not what Dave Wasserman or Cook Political Report does, which is basically handicap based on you know, characteristics of a race. I'm quantitative, but I'm not silver. I'm not an algorithm, I'm not developed a probability model. And silver, what he does, the, the, of the type of thing that he does, it's the best out there, right? But what I'm doing is completely different. And you're right, I've never heard anyone describe it that way, but I really do like it because what it's doing is it's really theory rich. Like the model is kind of like an afterthought, like the actual predictions that come out of it and the statistical element of it is all just byproduct because the meat of what I'm doing is the theory. It's this idea that in the polarized 
era that we're in, you know, our election analysis should probably catch up to the idea that even though partisanship has been always very important, it's now to the point where people will send someone like Roy Moore Jr., a really credibly accused child molester, to the U.S. Senate because he's got an R behind his name and the state of Alabama's heavily R, you know, mm-hmm. or Donald Trump, right? I mean, like, we get we this conversation all week about Bernie Sanders and whether, you know, oh, God, what a disaster if Sanders wins the nomination. I mean, certainly not the path of least resistance for Democrats. I'll make that clear. I'm, I'm not a squad forecaster, okay? Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. Like, Donald Trump is sitting in the White House. He breaks literally every rule of the Chuck Todd theory of the electorate. I mean, he should not be the president. He shouldn't have been able to win the Republican nomination. And even though that's happened, none of the analysts have accepted or moved on to the fact that the, you know, clearly something has changed and what is possible because of polarization. So, you know, that's really what the meat of my research is. It's it's that theoretical pivot. I remember that Scott Adams, he said when Trump won, he punched a hole through reality. And that is too aggressive and kind of silly. And Scott Adams is a Trumpite. So take that all with a grain of salt. But the idea that something in the language, in our history, in our political science was so disrupted by his victory and to watch people like Chuck Todd, like some in the mainstream media, like other political scientists, somehow try to adjust the model to take all this in rather than seeing this as a paradigm shift as you say, that reality, as we used to describe it, is fractured. The old metrics and measurements may not work anymore. We may be in, you know, for whatever reason, there are times when everything changes. And if you don't admit that you're in a paradigm shift, if you hang on, you're in trouble. No doubt. I mean, that's basically it. And really what's radical is that, you know, what I'm arguing is we don't just have a 100 persuadable independents mm-hmm. who changed their preferences between 2016 and 2012 mm-hmm. and for Obama and then Trump, you also have a hundred independents that voted in 2012 and then didn't show up in 2016. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about those people, but those people are just as important to election outcomes as the other people that did show up. So it's really actually as radical as it is, it's really simple, right? Yeah. And you know, this new um, analysis that I'm going to be putting out, which will finally give people a visual like thing that they can hold on to and see for 2018, it will look at these House districts and show them the way that these districts flipped are not because moderate Republicans joined hands with Democrats and had this kumbaya moment mm-hmm. because Democrats managed to serve up appetizing candidates and they focused purely on health care and it was enough to not offend these voters and they decided to switch teams and, and, you know, jump on the other side, the entire composition of these districts switched, right, mm. from mm. turnout surges. And that's what made them flip. And that, and that changes everything because we're not talking about a fixed pool of voters with, you know, preferences. We're talking about a pool that's fluid. And it means that the fluidity of that pool is responding to the same forces that the partisan part of the pool is responding to. And that, I mean, that's just a super big change. And I guess it's threatening to a lot of people. 
I am a just crap political scientist. And in fact, anything that has science attached to it, where it has too much precision required, I am bad at. So some of these are kind of kindergarten questions. But what does it take when people stay home? What is the usual reasoning or non-reasoning when people stay home and don't vote? So the main thing that I argue is comfort. Okay. okay. And I'm not ashamed, like, I'm not ashamed to be wrong or, or when yeah. I am wrong, I admit it. Like, I don't know if that's a man thing that you can't do, but for <laughs> women, when we're wrong, we admit it. Yeah. And so like in 2018, when I put out my initial forecast, I said, this is what I expect. I expect we're going to see this huge turnout surge for Democrats. And then like Democrats did when Obama was in office, they controlled the whole government. Democrats pulled back their participation and, and just was like, Ooh, we're fat and happy now. So I kind of expected hmm. Republicans were going to do that. And that was going to allow maybe Democrats to hold on to a couple of those crucial realigning states that are moving to long term to the Republican Party and had moved substantially since the Democrat had first won their seat. Missouri, Indiana um, had become much more Republican friendly since McCaskill and Donnelly had won those seats. Mm -hmm. But I thought, well, you know, if you basically catch the Republican part of the electorate sleeping and Democrats surge a lot, mm -hmm. you can probably like thread the needle in those states. Um, you can't win Tennessee for sure. You can't win Kentucky. It's not likely anyway. But Texas and Georgia, it may be a bit premature, but they're going to be competitive, mm -hmm. definitely competitive. And that was, you know, a pretty controversial claim in July of 2018. But I expected a turnout decline of Republicans. And ultimately, what I'm going to be showing in this analysis that's coming out in the New Republic is that that didn't happen. Unlike Democrats, Republican turnout does not decline in they don't get comfortable hmm. and and I argue that the reason why is because the Republican Party and especially the Republican Party under Trump artificially inflates negative partisanship for their electorate and keeps them uncomfortable. Like the messaging all yeah. the time is, you know, the fate of the free world hinges on you voting. If you don't vote, everything's going to fall apart. Yeah. They're going to take your guns. They're going to kill babies. You better show up, right? right? Whereas the Democratic messaging is like, oh, if you don't show up to vote, they're going to get rid of the pre-existing clause of Section 18 <laughs> on Clause 9 of, of Law Bill 10. Right? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, like to a white, you know, working right. class voter who has, you know, been, you know, working at minimum wage job, like that's just not a compelling message, right? Yes, right. My point is what happened in 18, and I'm going to show this in this analysis, is, you know, the surge for Democrats is huge. It's proportionally much larger. It had a lot larger to grow because it was so low before. Mm -hmm. But not only does Republican turnout not decline, mm -hmm. it goes up. OK, mm. it goes up mm. and in almost every district of those competitive districts that I analyze, actually, Republicans still proportionally outperform Democrats on turnout, even though they don't have a wave on their back. I've been saying periodically that I think Republicans and in particular conservatives have been culturally underserved for a long time so that they've had, you know, nothing while Lots of people in urban centers, including in the Midwest, subscribe to Netflix and watch the extremely compelling dramas that television now turns out. There's really only um, Duck Dynasty and some other reality shows and Fox uh, and Fox, which is, you know, a relentless melodrama. You know, there's right. nothing yeah. subtle about it. And you know, oh, gosh, yeah. I, I yeah, wish yeah. that they there was they had more sex and death. You know, at some point I was thinking 
wow, that, you know, people who get into Pizzagate and QAnon, they just need this hyperstimulation of sex and death. And then I looked at all the British detective shows I watch, and there's always some, like, child molesting sex, whatever. But it's in the context of fiction with, yeah, you know, yeah. tools to understand it. And it doesn't make you go out, get a gun, and go to the pizza parlor. It, you know, you understand it as fiction and you move on. Everybody needs allegories about love, sex, and death. And if Fox News is your only one and the only response to that hyper arousal is go out and vote, 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 or it's the end of the world, then that's a message that's like screaming in your head like son of Sam all the time. The way you spell it out seems exactly right. Now, that said, Democrats have been at such a loss to understand Trump's presidency that they really have, and I've signed on to something that's been an insult hurled at me many times, but I now believe that Trump derangement syndrome exists and that Democrats now feel existentially terrified of Trump's re-election. Yeah, I mean, temporarily, right? Yeah. Yes. That's the meat of my model. That's the blood that runs through the skeleton of it. Okay, I love that. Now, forget about approval ratings. There's never been a more despised president, I think, in American history. Oh, gosh, yes, yes. yes. So, like, usually, you know what a bell-shaped curve is in statistics? Yeah. For your listeners' purposes, though, you know, you have a date... People's height, people's weight, people's test scores, people, not anymore in college, but whatever, people's test scores, people's IQ. You have data in the natural world tends to come in in what would be a bell shape where there's many observations that are average and very few as you go out to the extremes. And so it makes a nice bell shaped curve. Mm -hmm. And so like that's how presidential approval had always been. Uh, Most people either strongly support or somewhat supported or somewhat opposed Mm -hmm. the president. And then there were a few people that strongly hated him or strongly loved him. As we move into the polarized era, that bell shape starts to distort. And instead of the middle being highly populated, the extremes become more populated where people were like, oh, I strongly hate Clinton. I strongly hate um, or I strongly like him. And, And same for Bush. But when we get an Obama, Obama, it starts to get really intense because because not because Obama's polarizing. Okay, let me be clear about that. Yeah. Obama's just a guy. He, I mean, as far as these things go, he's actually, in tem- terms of his temperament, fairly, you know, benign. He's, yeah. a, he's a very benign, temperamental president. Reagan, also very benign, temperamental president. Yep. The reaction to Obama is, is what's polarized, and it's a product of the time period that Obama is serving in. But when we look at Trump... I mean, it really is acute. The two extremes are that have almost all the observations. So people strongly hate Trump or strongly like him. And very, very few, I'm talking 10%, say they somewhat like him or somewhat hate him. Mm-hmm. And that's weird. Okay. Yeah. And he's also running as like the, you know, basically the most hated president to run for reelection since Jimmy Carter. We had Joe Walsh on this show last week, and he was saying people were getting madder and madder while Obama was president. You know, he was watching the red states and his own constituency as a Republican then. And they were getting madder and madder. And I just kept thinking, why? 
What made everyone so mad? You know, there wasn't Weimar inflation. There wasn't a dust bowl. There wasn't like a whole lot of way to get mad at Obama unless he had been framed as the evil mustachioed, you know, end times harbinger or whatever on Fox News. So I think you're right to say it's not the figures that are polarizing so much except as for Trump. I mean, obviously, except right? for but Trump. Trump is, Trump is is definitely polarizing, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. not Bush and not. Obama. I mean, Bush, you could make an argument for with the war, but Obama's presidency is eight years of basically, you know, there's nothing notable that happens, right? I don't remember the contempt. I mean, look, Hillary Clinton was a extremely popular senator in New York and was a well-respected secretary of state and had gotten through Benghazi with flying colors. And then all of a sudden we were supposed to imagine that she was unlikable and controversial and polarizing. That wasn't an accident. You guys realize that, right? I mean, when I talk about like the difference between Republicans and Democrats when it comes to electioneering. I mean, the Republicans are playing chess, like high level, you know, beat the best players in the world chess. And then Democrats can't even win Connect Four, you know? Yeah. I mean, what they did with Clinton was all strategic. It was, uh, hey, you know, we've got the power of investigation. We've got this catalyst with Benghazi. You know, they politicized the hell out of an event that should never have been politicized. There was no reason to cast her in a light of, of you know, malfeasance with Benghazi. Certainly, it was not an accident. It was all done intentionally. And that's why, where Trump got the idea to do with Biden. I mean, this is what, you know, this is one of their new techniques. And it's, you know, it's brilliant. It's evil. It's a terrible thing for democracy. Uh, but the Republicans play for keeps. I mean, and they understand that they are playing a game for keeps. They, they, uh, and they made a decision in 2013 to go one way or the other, the other way, you know, that team lost and now they have break it, you know, the term you break it or buy it. Yeah. They've bought it. And then like that, you know, those CDs that came out with the plans for the uh, census and the gerrymandering, oh, yeah. Like, they understand that they are playing for keeps. Like, I I don't get why the Democrats are so incapable of understanding that, like, they don't want to be in a war fine. I don't want to be in a war. I, I always tell people I'm a I'm a moderate. <laughs> I work in a moderate think tank. I, I'm a moderate girl living in an ideologues world, right? Yeah. But it doesn't matter if you want to be in this war because the Republicans are waging it against you anyway. So you have no choice, right? And they are playing to win it. I am maybe alone. I'm a voice alone in the wilderness on this one particular point, which is in the chess connect four model, it seems to me more like Republicans are dealing in, you know, maybe speed and opiates where Democrats want wine. I get that Republicans are getting a lot of quick bangs and highs and lows. But according to lots of Republicans we've had on the show, they seem to be salting the earth for their own party. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. Right. So it's like I see that they're getting these short term highs and lows. But, you know, if you listen to Adam Schiff and everyone today is saying where, you know, why aren't given this Roger Stone sentencing issue and whatever else, where are the Democratic protests? What are they doing? What are congressional House Democrats doing? And, you know, I was listening to Adam Schiff again last night thinking he really does believe and he could end up wrong that he's playing the long game, that the truth must prevail. We have no other choice but to think that that's possible. And so the idea of going all in 
to whatever dirty tricks would constitute playing chess, colluding with Angela Merkel, whatever it takes. I mean, he's not thinking that way because, not because he's just so much better than everyone else, but because he thinks that short-term win would have long-term consequences for his party, not to mention for truth and justice. Oh, I mean, some of that, yes, I think that's certainly, and a lot of it, though, I think is just plain naivety. You know, here's the thing. The impeachment trial, I mean, I I definitely think Democrats needed to invoke the articles of impeachment against Trump on Ukraine. It was an absolute must-have. I mean, imagine an alternative scenario in which all of that stuff happened, all that evidence, and the Democrats sat there inept Mm -hmm. and were like, well, we just, we're we're not going to do anything. I mean, the base of the party would have been completely deflated going into the election. And of course, why why wouldn't they be? What's the point of putting people into office if they're so afraid to use their power to hold, you know, what obviously uh, a massive violation of the presidency. Uh, So, you know, going into the process of impeachment was a a must have for Democrats, but it also was always the case that they were going to acquit him in the Senate and that they were never going to vote to include witnesses or do anything else that was any close to a a fair, impartial, 1970s Watergate-style trial. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked when I began to realize that, like, Mark Warner and Adam Schiff, like, weren't just pretending on television that they expected Republicans to behave ethically. Like, they actually believed it, right? Because it's one thing to say that shit on TV, but it's quite another to believe it. And I was really, really, really surprised to find out how many of these, you know, congressional Democrats, like, as you just said, genuinely believe at the end of the day that truth would have to prevail, that if they just went there and presented the evidence that the Republicans would have to do the right thing. And, and, and that tells me that like there is just something about the liberal ideological perspective of human nature which says humans are good and that people will do the right thing that is not well suited for what what is happening right now in the political realm that we're in I think you're right about that. I mean, I think that there, you know, it may be that that measured reasoned discourse or even the appeal to our better angels is lost in the current kind of spite cesspool that we find ourselves in. But if what's crucial for Democrats is that they inspire turnout and that they, what is it, disturb the comfortable. So make it very clear that yes. you can't, we cannot, Democrats or Democrat-leaning you know, independents who might be inclined to stay home cannot afford unless on pain of losing American ideals, truth, justice, the possibility of peace and prosperity cannot sit out the election. And he does a nice job bringing himself at the brink of tears like he does and also shaming the Republicans so much for failing to do their duty, so much that you almost feel like, well, if you were kind of a go-along, get-along guy that sort of is like, I'm not going to get into the weeds on this impeachment thing because politicians are all the same. But if Adam Schiff and the impeachment trial had any effect on people's thinking about their comfort on in November, it might have been to say, oh, I don't want to be a go-along, get-along person anymore. I'd rather be Mitt Romney today. Like I said, I think the impeachment trial had to happen because you had to show people that you were going to do something with power. 
And, you know, right now the Democrats are in this five stages of grief. They're in sadness, right, and despair. Yeah. But essentially anger will come back, right? And it won't take that long because Trump always – he's going to do something horrible. Like, God, like the uh, Mueller – when um, I met with Never never Trump right after yeah. Mueller's – you know, he got away with the Russian stuff. And I said, now that he's gotten away with this, he's going to do something much, much worse. And as I was speaking, he was literally doing the Ukraine thing. So imagine now when he He's got completely knows he's 100% immune from law. He's going to do something terrible. He's got no self-control. So anger will come back. And, and you know, people mystified me because they thought, well, if Trump gets acquitted, isn't that going to help him? And I'm like, why would it help him? Because the winning side isn't the one that gets pissed off, right? Yeah. It's the losers from fights that get pissed off, right? Right, right. So, but it, it is conditioned on this. And this, I mean, this is what my point is. You're absolutely right. The things that the Republican, like Joe Walsh, he understands he played a role. Yes, his voters went nuts, but he understands that he also drove his voters nuts. At least he has moments of clarity in exchanges I've had with him on Twitter. You know, I'm working on a book called The Fear Factory, How America Lost Its Mind. And it's about fear capitalism, basically, hmm. the Fox and media empires and all of these different entities and how they, you know, make money by driving people nuts. And that goes through the campaign world, too. And so there's a lot of financial incentive for people to produce stuff that messes with the voters psychologically. And the Republican Party literally did things to their electorate that drove it so nuts they lost control of it like Frankenstein, and then the electorate ate it, right? <laughs> and now, you know, the founders of the Republican Party have been excised out of their own party. So, mm -hmm. like, the founders of intellectual conservatism, mm -hmm. by and large, are all exiles of the party now. They're the last remains of Never Trump. Mm -hmm. And the party is now, you know, has had a civil war that's concluded, and it's now ruled by an entirely new ruling class. Mm -hmm. So when I say that Democrats need to campaign more like Republicans, I do mean it. I think they need to appeal to stakes. Democrats, I think they naturally don't think that they should go out there and make the election a referendum on Trump and make the stakes as you just described them. Hey, electorate, Democrats, independent leaning people on the left, if you do not vote the American ideal will be forever lost. Like we are going to lose. We're going to crash into an authoritarian dictatorship mm -hmm. if you don't get off your ass and vote. Right? Yeah. That's the message that Rick Wilson and I tell Democrats they should run on. Democrats, as far as I can tell, think that they should run on issues. Yeah. So like there's a ton of ways to improve how Democrats campaign and make their messaging more stakes oriented to improve their turnout deficiencies without going the full Monty and driving your electorate nuts. Yeah, I'm with you and Rick. I mean, they absolutely. It seems like you know, there's so many m metaphors and models for this, but I don't know if you saw, but Obama, it's very recently reported that back in 2016, Obama said to Tim Kaine, Hillary Clinton's running mate, um, please don't, something like, please don't be a purist now, don't stand on ceremony, because he was getting very pious about something, um, because it's time to defeat a fascist. Right, and right, I yeah. think that fascism is a kitchen table issue, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I mean, here's right? the thing. 
Democrats are, this is the most frustrating part for them. Like they, I don't know how they can do this because they're so, I think they're so smart they become stupid, right? Consult any person that's an expert in human behavior Mm -hmm. and they're going to tell you the last way to judge human behavior, the worst way anyway, is to ask people, how do you think and feel and believe? Because people have kinds of misperceptions about that, right? So like voters will ask that, you know, uh, Democrats ask people, should we make this issue a referendum on Trump? And the voters say, no, I want it to be about issues, right? Mm. Of course they say that. They don't want to think of themselves as base instinct, emotive negative people that Mm -hmm. just want to focus on this referendum effect. But that is not how people work. So the worst part about Democrats is they have all these misperceptions about voters and they construct their campaign efforts based on like a mythological understanding of how Americans vote. So I have a Republican in my family, my sort of extended family, who I've mentioned him on the show before, but he's always voted Republican. And he, while I think it's not clear why I think he voted for Rodin Kasich or something in 2016, um, he does watch Fox News and and periodically say, say things he's heard there. He certainly distrusts the, quote, liberal elite and the media and has all the right antipathies that get kindled in right-wing media. And the last time I tried to talk to him a little bit about anger in red counties and what how, where that's, that comes from, he said he was tired of being angry and that he wasn't watching Fox News anymore. He was watching the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> and, you know, there's something where... I think your comfort word is right on. So sometimes you can think, how can I be more comfortable? Well, maybe if there was a chicken in every pot or I had a higher paying job with more vacation, or maybe if I had better health care and could get my prescription pills covered. But one thing that is really compromising our comfort right now is the like sepsis and Lyme disease in our that's in our visual and auditory field all the time when we're getting yelled at and we're getting punched in the face by a president that keeps like jerking us around. And I think that people will vote to get out of that pain. Either him saying, I'm just, you know, a Republican, but and I could have would have been a Trumpite, but I'm either staying home or other times I've heard him say he'd write in Bloomberg or Democrats saying, I don't usually take these elections seriously, but make the pain stop. Yeah, no, I say like a big like way to appeal to the to the middle of the electorate, you know, which is not it's not you know, the way the political article is written. You know, I didn't write the headline, right? Uh, it's a designed to be provocative and, and to get people to pay attention to yeah. it. Um, you know, there are some persuadable swing voters out there, and a good way to to talk to those people because they aren't particularly engaged in politics, or certainly not how Chuck Todd envisions them. Reading the New York Times and you know engaged in um, debating these issues and you know sizing up each camp campaign and what have you, uh, is to just tell them they can have Monday night football back, you know, uninterrupted and unpolluted if they get rid of Trump. Right. 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 (laughs) Yeah. A big chunk of the country that would find that attractive. Right. Yeah. There's an element of torture going on here. And like we all just want a cracker and a glass of water. You know, we've been like they've kept us open with our eyes propped open. I mean, and I, I would say, well, that's just in the media or for you in academia or a think tank. But that's what I'm hearing, at least in my very informal polls from friends in Indiana, in Utah, just to kind of make it stop. Can we go back to normal? 
feeling. And it'll be interesting to see what normal looks like. Now, for you, and we're teeing this up, but the very good news in the first place I came across you, the Politico profile starts, what if everything you think you know about politics is wrong, and then cites you as an oracle, that, that you say, well, what do you say about 2020? And what do you think today about 2020? Who's going to win? Who's going to be the next president? So I have a, a forecast that you can view online. It's been out since July 1st of 2019. So and um, it's not a like Nate Silver type forecast. So it doesn't have polls. It's based on demographics. It's based on college education, yep. which is a uh, predictor that I selected before the 2018 election mm-hmm. and knew that was going to be a giant uh, spike in the realignment that was already in progress with college educated whites moving away from the Republicans and white working class voters moving towards the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Just a long-term coalitional realignment. Uh, it had nothing to do with Hillary Clinton, in other words. Yeah, so anyway, my model looks at, basically, it identifies all the places where Democrats have population mm-hmm. and um, where they could, in a turnout surge, perform really well. Mm-hmm. And that's why Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, the blue wall, still are very friendly territory for Democrats. We saw that in 2018 when Pennsylvania and Michigan were not even competitive for Republicans at the at the Senate level. They couldn't even compete for those Senate seats. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's very likely to me that those seats are going to be way off the table for them, um, the two states in the Electoral College. Wisconsin's going to be a tougher nut. It's a lot more competitive for Republicans in Wisconsin but I still think Democrats have an edge there. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I mean, I'm assuming the Democrats are going to have a nominee and the party is going to rally around that nominee. That's the only um, factor that I don't really under- know right now. I do think a little bit of the nominee um, matters in terms of is there a person of color on the ticket somewhere? Yeah. So I argue that you must have in a modern Democratic coalition representation of a you know person of color, <laughs> Latino and African-American, somebody that recognizes how diverse the coalition is. So I'm much more concerned with ethnic and racial diversity than I am ideological factors. Mm. Yeah, so that forecast is available. It has four swing states on top of that, um, that it's already passed that 270 electoral college vote map for Democrats. So those swing states are kind of surplus for Democrats. And that's Iowa, North Carolina, Florida, and Arizona. Rachel Bittekoffer is assistant director of the Think Tank at Christopher Newport University, where she teaches classes on political behavior elections and political analysis. She is also the author of the unprecedented 2016 presidential election. Thank you so much for being here, Rachel. You're you're the best. (laughs) That's it for today's show. What do you think? Come join us on the microblogging platform to end all microblogging platforms. That's Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and just become a Slate Plus member. Today's your day. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free, and that makes a difference. It's also only $35 for the first year. You get tons of digital swag and invites to things, and best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.